The schedule, the job, the kids. Take some time just for you. It's Sunday mornings with D. Daniels on B101.5, powered by Mary Washington Healthcare, one of DC's best hospitals that isn't in DC. It's in Fredericksburg, Mary Washington Hospital. Here for you. And now D. Daniels. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the show, the show that's all about you and your life and your world. You know, we are proud supporters of our Children's Hospital, Children's National, all year long. And I'm excited to catch up with one of uh, our heroes in healthcare from Children's National, Dr. Roberta DiBiase, who is the chief of the Division of Pediatric Diseases at Children's National Hospital. Among other wonderful hats, Dr. DiBiase treats normal and immunocompromised children hospitalized with severe infections at Children's National, and she leads the Children's National Ebola and Emerging Infections Task Force. Good morning, Dr. DiBiase. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm very glad that you had this opportunity uh, and could give us some time to talk about so many important things. And first, I want to say thank you so much for the hard work and the dedication that you all put in every day on a regular year, but above and beyond, to say the least, as we've been navigating through this pandemic, you all are true heroes. Thank you. We appreciate that. So we're over a year now into COVID with certainly, I feel like, good news on the horizon every day. What's the mood like right now with the staff at the hospital? Are are you guys feeling positive? We feel positive, but we're also nervous because we are seeing an uh, increase in the last two or three weeks. Um, So we had a very steep increase. I'm sure you know uh, that what we all called the the second large wave of COVID that, you know, started at the end of November. Um, And then we had this beautiful steep decline that was occurring uh, over February, but it's kind of stalled out and it's actually started accelerating again. Um, And and that's true in our region as well in in Maryland, Virginia and DC. So we're cautiously uh, watching that curve. We're hoping that that's a temporary blip and we hope that people will still realize that there's still a lot of transmission going on out there. Not the time to completely relax things because we certainly don't want to get back up on that peak like we were in January. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I think there was a mis- a really a big misconception at the beginning of COVID around the risk of kids getting it. I mean, a lot of people thought kids were not at risk at all, but you all treated kids with symptoms pretty early into this, right? Absolutely. You know, and it was interesting when the information from China came out initially, the message was essentially that not only are kids not severely affected, they're not even infected. It was just there there was very little, maybe 2% of all of the infections. And then when it first got to the United States on the West Coast, um, we keep in close contact with all of our colleagues there. They kind of had the same experience. But by the time it got to the East Coast, which came via Europe, um, we had a completely different experience here on the East Coast. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, now when people have looked at their data, children do make up about 13% of all infections, uh, but thankfully only make up about 3% of all the hospitalizations and zero, almost 0% of the deaths. You know, very, very rarely do children die from COVID or the uh, multi-system inflammatory disease disorder, now that we know what that is and how to treat it. Um, but definitely children are infected. We've had now over 2,500 children with symptoms come to Children's Hospital uh, to be evaluated and treated. And of those, about 450 have been sick enough they've needed to stay in the hospital. And of those, about 150 have been sick enough they've needed critical care support, such as the ICU. Um, and then for the inflammatory disorder, the MISC, 
we've had about 140 of those patients. So definitely affects children. You definitely need to have a center that knows how to recognize and treat these uh, disorders. But the take-home for families is that compared to adults, even though children are getting infected, they seem to be getting hospitalized at a much lower rate than adults. Yeah, and I think that's that's certainly important information to know as we continue uh, to watch what's going on and be nervous and cautious and, and all of those things. And, and I agree with you a million percent. You know, this is not the time to, to let up with all of this. I do want to mention while you are listening to the show this morning, if you would like to donate to our children's hospital, we have a very convenient link for you at B1015.com, keyword donate. And you can know that your donation is helping right here in our community, B1015.com, keyword donate. So you mentioned, uh, Dr. DiBiase, about the multi-system inflammatory syndrome. I'd love for you to explain what that is and how it relates at all to COVID. Sure. You know, this is a unique uh, syndrome for children. Uh, We don't see it in adults. And essentially what we think it is is a sort of complication of having had the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection, which we call COVID. And it happens whether or not the child was infected and had symptoms or whether or not the child was infected and just never had any symptoms. And it seems to happen about four to six weeks later, which is when your body is doing the right thing it's supposed to do, which is making antibodies and making an immune response beyond antibodies to the virus, because that's what our body does no matter what infection you have. You have an infection, your body says, hey, that's not supposed to be in my body, and I'm going to make some armies of antibodies and other um, immune cells to fight it off. So in this C, what we think happens is around that four- to six-week mark when the immune system should have kind of done its job and starts to shut off, it just keeps going and it keeps uh, accelerating. And so these kids come in with very um, high inflammatory markers, high fevers. Most of them have really severe abdominal pain. They can have vomiting. They can have rashes. Um, They may or may not have other things like cardiac uh, dysfunction where their heart is not uh, squeezing properly or they may have uh, kidney problems or other uh, multi-organ involvement. Um, And when this first happened, um, it was out of Europe, and no one had ever seen this before. And thankfully, the physicians there um, helped us to understand very quickly how to recognize it, how to treat it. And by the time we started having cases here in the U.S. on the East Coast and in D.C., we were way ahead of the game, thanks to those colleagues in Europe. Um, So, like I mentioned, here at Children's, we've had uh, about 140 of those cases. We've had no deaths, um, and these children respond very quickly to uh, pretty aggressive therapies that kind of settle down all of that uh, excess inflammation. Dr. Roberta DeBiase is my guest on the Sunday show this week. And uh, talk a little bit about uh, the symptoms that you're talking about and the treatment. What's the long-lasting effects? I mean, as far as for COVID and as far as uh, for for the other as well, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome, are, are kids recovering quicker than adults? You know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of things, especially about COVID, of people saying some of the uh, effects from COVID lasting for a long time, uh, you know, losing the sense of smell and taste and things like that. What What's the difference with, with kids and how they're responding uh, long term? This is a very, very important question. And it's actually the focus of a big study we'll be doing um, that will follow up children that have had either regular, you know, prime, what we call primary infection, their first infection with this virus, uh, which is called COVID, if you end up, you know, with symptoms, 
um, or the kids with multi-system inflammatory disorder, because obviously there are no adults with that. So this is a unique situation. And we'll be doing a six-year follow-up of all these children to look at what are the long-term effects, if any, on their blood counts, on their heart function, on their pulmonary, their lung function, um, and more importantly, what is the impact of this on their quality of life long-term? What about their mental health? How about their um, development? You know, because these are all things that are unique to children. Uh, if they get an infection while they're a child, how, how can it affect uh, their, their neurodevelopmental uh, progress? So we don't have an answer to that yet. I can tell you in the short term, since we've had, you know, a year now of these patients, the vast majority of them seem to be doing okay. Um, there are children that end up, as I mentioned, in the intensive care unit who have a very similar course to adults, and those tend to be our older adolescents who kind of make sense. They're kind of closer to having the physiology or the, the workings of an adult, so they have a very similar um, pattern if they're very ill with the pulmonary illness initially. But we don't know the long-term effects on their lungs or things yet, and that will be the focus of that really important study. Yeah, so important. I mean, it's unbelievable the work that you all have been doing in this last year. I mean, on a regular basis, on a regular year, you're doing so much research at Children's National, doing so many things um, and and clinical trials and studies and things that are going on. How has your life uh, changed over the course of this year as far as research goes? Because I feel like the with the vaccines coming in and the information it's just it's got to be just so much that's going on you have so much in front of you yet so much that we still need to learn yeah i mean we have been so busy with you know taking care of the patients and making sure that we're actually optimizing and you know helping other centers because frankly we have a lot of patients and it, you know just like we learned from europe other centers that don't have as much volume of patients can learn from our experience so we we've, we've kind of prioritized uh, you know, studying our own patient population and spreading the word about what we've found works. So that's step one. The other research, though, um, is really a collaboration of everyone in the hospital and in our associated research institute. So we've done, for instance, we've done and published research about testing children. You know, how many are positive? How many have antibodies? What percentage of the kids have uh, antibodies? We've done, um, we've published uh, research and, you know, done this on um, using unique ways to treat children, like, for instance, saliva-based testing compared to the, the swabs that go up your nose. Uh, we've done research on racial and socioeconomic disparities in children. And in fact, our paper was the first to show that that does exist in the pediatric population, not just in adults. Um, we've done research on the mechanisms of uh, the immune response. So we have scientists working on that. We have scientists working on novel treatments uh, for COVID. So we really um, have tried to answer a lot of these unanswered questions. But of course, you can imagine that takes hundreds and hundreds of people with different kinds of expertise. And we're very um, lucky at Children's to have this group of individuals that have come together to answer these questions. Dr. DiBiase from Children's National Hospital, my guest on the Sunday show. And I mentioned this earlier, but if you would like to donate to our Children's Hospital all year long, we are raising money for our Children's Hospital in so many different ways. And, of course, you can know that that money stays right here. Your donation helps out our community and our kids right here, which is just fantastic. It's on our website at B1015.com, keyword donate. I want to, coming up, uh, certainly talk about uh, the vaccines. There's so much going on with that. Things are happening very, very quickly. 
quickly. Uh, but before I get to that, um, I do want to mention as COVID started, Children's National really led the way with uh, kids and testing. You guys had a testing site up pretty immediately, right? Yes, this was a really um, unique partnership between our emergency medicine group, our laboratory uh, group, who's really been uh, an amazing leader in the country with testing in general, but in particular for pediatrics. And what they did was they came up with a ambulatory either walk-up or drive-up center, which, you know, people now I think are very familiar with those, but at the time it was, you know, not anything that had been done before. Right. Um, and we were the first to have a, a dedicated pediatric walk-up drive-up. And, and that's important because you can imagine it takes a different skill set to do a nasal swab on a small baby or, oh, or young child no doubt, no doubt. Uh, compared to a cooperative, you know, adult. So um, this was really important. They tested thousands of children, and it also gave us really important information about the, the amount of disease in the community. So at the peak of uh, transmission, when this was going on, nearly 50% or half of the kids that had symptoms actually had positive testing, and that was really unheard of uh, until, you know, that had been done at our center. Just amazing things that uh, have been happening uh, over the last year, over a year now at Children's National. And we want to talk more about uh, the testing and the treatments and, of course, uh, the vaccines. And we want to do that coming up right after this break. A big thanks to our sponsor here on the Sunday Morning Show, Mary Washington Healthcare. The journey to pregnancy is different for everyone. Whether your journey to motherhood is a breeze or requires advanced treatment options, Mary Washington Healthcare delivers personalized care for you and your baby with our obstetrics and gynecologic and maternal fetal medicine practices. Our partnership with Children's National Hospital and specialty certified staff in the region's only level three NICU means we are equipped to care for even the smallest miracle. Learn more at mybaby.mwhc.com. Our healthcare workers have gone the distance. Now it's your turn to run or walk the distance. Join Stafford Hospital for the Cabin Fever 5K. Participate virtually between April 9th through the 18th. Get the whole family involved with the Half Mile Kids Fun Run. This race is part of the Stafford Race Series and Fredericksburg Area Running Club's Caldwell Banker Elite Grand Prix. Visit runsignup.com and search Stafford Hospital Cabin Fever 5K to sign up. Now back to Sunday mornings of D Daniels on B101.5. Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the show. Of course, you can follow along anytime as you make your way over to our Facebook at B1015FM. You can also listen to past shows here of the Sunday morning show at B1015.com, keyword Sunday mornings, and check out the Sunday morning podcast as well. You know, we are proud supporters of our Children's Hospital, Children's National, and all year long we raise money for our Children's Hospital. If you would like to donate uh, while you're listening to this show this week, it's B1015.com, keyword donate. Dr. Roberta DiBiase, the Chief of the Division of Pediatric Diseases at Children's National Hospital, is my guest this week on the Sunday show. And we're talking, of course, about COVID and what's happening right now, currently, with the numbers in our area, also with uh, vaccinations. I want to get into the vaccine a little bit. Um, This is all happening very quickly, Dr. DiBiase. I feel like um, we are getting a lot of information and the vaccines are, are certainly rolling out. Can kids get vaccinated? How is that going? What kind of research are, are you doing on uh, the effect of the vaccines with, with children? 
Yes, vaccination, I think everyone appreciates now, is really our way out of this uh, epidemic. I mean, we, we have to continue to focus on getting this vaccine out to as many people as a, at as many ages as possible, as quickly as possible, because it's a race between ongoing transmission and the, the emergence, as you guys have heard, of these variants, which are, you know, potentially less protectable by the vaccines that we have. So uh, the initial vaccines that were released from Moderna and Pfizer, which are those mRNA vaccines, do allow us to go down to uh, part of the pediatric age group. So the Pfizer, for instance, can go down to uh, children down to 16 years of age. And the Moderna has not yet gone down to that age, but both Pfizer and Moderna have uh, been doing studies in the 12 to uh, 15-year-old group in the case of Pfizer and the 12 to 17-year-old group in the case of Moderna. And that uh, data is just coming out even this week. There was some very exciting data that it is highly effective and safe in these age groups. So we expect that that will be going to the FDA for a review, and we're hoping that by the time, even before kids go back to school, that very important group of children that are down to age 12 could be eligible for vaccines, even if they're a completely normal child, and that's that's what we're hoping for. Simultaneously, the uh, companies are also continuing to do clinical trials, and by clinical trials, we mean we enroll patients and uh, usually about a half of the people get a placebo and the other half get a vaccine. And we look at the difference in how protective uh, or how often those people get an infection at all, how uh, commonly they get hospitalized, and how commonly they have severe illness or death. Now, in children, we don't have a lot of death, thank goodness, but it's still really important to understand how much we can prevent infection because we know that children, as I told you, at a time of uh, circulation are a significant part of the equation of the virus continuing to circulate. So um, the the clinical trials are ongoing now uh, and have been initiated that will go down to six months of age, and these will be done incrementally. So in other words, you look at the the data that comes out down to age 12, and you say, okay, now let's enroll 5- to 11-year-olds. And if that looks great, now we'll go down from 1- to 5-year-olds and, and therefore, uh, you know, sequentially go down to younger age groups. So all of that is going on right now. Um, we, we will certainly be participating in those at Children's, and you'll hear more as the uh, trials become activated. But the take-home point is right now, down to 16, there are many states that, uh, you know, have opened up vaccination down to age 16 for children, even with no underlying immune uh, or underlying medical conditions. You'll see that more and more in the coming weeks um, as states get more and more supply. Um, my own kids have gotten the vaccine. It's been a thrilling wow. <laughs> thing to see. They're, they're so happy. Um, so <laughs> stay tuned and please, uh, you know, stay in touch with your own local health uh, departments because they'll be telling you when it's available. Absolutely. As far as children getting the vaccine, is the time frame the same as adults? Like, do they get one shot and then they get a second shot, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks down the road? How is it the same sort of thing for kids? Yeah, it depends on the product. So if you're 18 year old, uh, for instance, or 17, let's say you're 18, you could get the Pfizer, the Moderna, or the Janssen vaccine. So um, Moderna would be two shots four weeks apart. Pfizer would be two shots three weeks apart. And the Janssen is a single dose. 
if you're um, 16 years of age, you're really only eligible for that uh, Pfizer vaccine, but it's the same thing. So it's two doses, three weeks apart. Um, And then, you know, one thing that has come up that people have asked is sometimes certain health departments or pharmacies now that are getting it may not be able to schedule you in exactly at three weeks or exactly at four weeks because it depends on their supply. Right. But it's okay if it's, you know, a week late or two weeks after your uh, official first time that you could get that second dose. We just can't give it earlier, but later is okay. I think that was, I'm glad you said that because I think that was such a a big topic, especially right at the beginning, you know, when we were getting, uh, hearing about, you know, certain groups getting the vaccine and rolling out our phases in Virginia, um, which seemed to be rolling out very slowly at first, but then, you know, it's opening up as we speak, which is great. But I think that was the big concern of like, okay, well, what if I miss that date? That's exactly, you know, three weeks or four weeks from when I got the first one. I might as well not even get it because I missed it. No, absolutely not. That is the wrong message. So, you know, even one shot, we didn't talk about this. Even one shot is very protective, you know, at least 50 percent protective and probably more in the younger kids um, against uh, infection. And when you get that second shot, it's a it's a boosted effect. And that's what gets us up to those higher uh, 95% that you've heard for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines and the 80%, 70 to 80% for the Janssen vaccines. These are all really highly effective and safe vaccines. And um, a booster effect, it doesn't matter if you get it, you know, at the three or four week mark or the five or the six or the seven, you're going to get that boost. So um, definitely at the first chance you have to get even one dose of vaccine, that is the vaccine you want to get. And talking about like booster uh, effects and things like that, what about booster shots later on? I know we're asking you to look into a crystal ball, but do you think that that's going to be something that adults and kids are going to have to get more of later? How is that? How is that looking now? Well, up until 11 o'clock last night, I would have said we just don't have the information. But literally yesterday, uh, Pfizer released their six month follow up data from their initial very large clinical trial, which, you know, had 40,000 people. And this is also wonderful, great news that it appears that the amount of protection, which I told you was in the over 90% range, stays that way for at least six months. So we now have six months that show at that point it is still just as effective as, uh, you know, when you first got your first two shots. Now, of course, that has to be done longer, and they'll be doing that. So we'll have, you know, nine-month data and year-long data. But the fact that it stays that high uh, for six months, you know, it's not going to just disappear the next month. So usually what happens with vaccine antibodies is they kind of slowly drift down and wane to a point where they're not as protective. But we're not seeing really any appreciable decline in that protection for at least six months for the the Pfizer uh, vaccine. We expect that to be the case for Moderna because they're very similar. We don't have that data yet. And then we will not know yet for Janssen, but everyone will be uh, accumulating that same kind of information, which will be shared with the public. So, you know, the bottom line is whether or not we need a booster is depends on two factors. One is how well does the vaccine antibodies that are made stay? And right now that looks very optimistic that they stay very well. But the other part is how much is in the community? Because quite honestly, if everyone is vaccinated and this goes away, we're not going to need a booster, right? Right. But if it's still highly circulating and they wane, then we are going to need boosters. 
Well, yeah, and that's certainly positive news. Uh, I'm glad you shared that, and and you're getting it, you know, fresh from last night. I love it. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, Dr. Uh, Roberta DiBiase, my guest on the Sunday show. Don't forget, you can donate to our children's hospital at B1015.com, keyword donate, as we are talking about all of these uh, wonderful things that are going on um, at Children's National and the research they're doing and, and just amazing things. I, as speaking of the hospital, I want to I want to talk about uh, Children's National, the building, uh, just for a moment. It's been too long since I've been uh, to the hospital and inside. Of course, uh, you know, visitors were not allowed for a long time. Are you allowing visitors now? What, what are the restrictions at the hospital now? We do allow uh, one visitor per patient. Uh, we don't allow, you know, for instance, outside groups and a lot of the um, events that we used to have. We're, we're not do, we're not opening that up yet because it's just too high risk a situation. Uh, but, if, for instance, if your child was admitted to the hospital, we do allow one visitor to remain with them. Um, and we do very careful screening of anyone that comes, you know, even to walk into the building, any of our employees, any of our contractors. Um, we have a very strict system. Every single day when you show up for work, you need to fill out uh, information to make sure that you're not having symptoms. So um, it is still restricted because, as I mentioned, there's still a lot of circulation in the community right now. So we haven't gotten to the point where we can just open things up yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I'm glad you guys are taking such high precaution. Um, we certainly missed doing our live radiothon uh, from the beautiful uh, atrium of the hospital. But at the same time, uh, obviously, the health of the children and the families and the staff, certainly um, top priority, no doubt about it. How how ha- how has your day to day changed uh, since COVID? I mean, you guys have had to be so I just so on it all the time I mean I'm sure it has just been exhausting you know we we watch all of these things on TV and and our healthcare workers just being in it just uh, constantly with this how has the the look and the landscape not only of your your day-to-day but also of the hospital changed do you have sections for COVID and COVID related things yeah that's a great question so I kind of see it in three ways. So, you know, first of all, to answer your question, is there a special area? Yes, indeed, there is. So we, um, as I mentioned, have a very strong emerging infectious uh, infections program. And so COVID is an example of, an, of a new infection that has emerged and caused a new highly contagious disease. But throughout history, there have been many, many of these types of diseases, and there will be many more to come. So examples are Ebola and Zika virus and anthrax and all these things that come up and and are uh, scary because they can, um, you know, cause severe disease and be very infectious. So at Children's, we established what's called a special isolation unit, which is a state-of-the-art area of the hospital uh, that keeps uh, the patients that we take care of and the staff that are taking care of them essentially segregated completely from the rest of the hospital. And that's important not only for the patients, but it's important for the rest of the operations of the hospital because there are still kids that need care for everything else, uh, like, you know, broken legs and surgery and uh, appendicitis and all other kinds of infections. So we can't just shut down the whole hospital and not take care of those children. Um, So we have used that unit uh, very effectively both during Ebola and now during uh, the COVID outbreak, and we have areas that are for both the kids that are hospitalized but don't need critical ill uh, care, as well as those that need our intensive care doctors who are so amazing um, and specialized in what they do. So that answers that question. Um, but I think the, 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 the three things I've seen is 
we really miss being with each other every day because it is a stressful job. Um, It's a rewarding job, but having the direct contact with your colleagues each day face-to-face is really important for morale and for, you know, just well-being. And to not have that, because a lot of our uh, docs that are not uh, doing direct patient care or researchers um, were actually off-site. So that we miss that, and that's an important part of, um, you know, well-being. The second, though, I think is more optimistic, is that we've been able to learn how to use telemedicine much more um, efficaciously. And, you know, doctors love it. Patients love it. It gives access to so many families that live three, four hours away uh, that wouldn't have been able to see a doctor. They can now just beam in and we can see them at home. Um, we can, you know, if we're running 10 minutes late because we've had a, a sicker patient ahead, it's so much easier for the family. The child can go out and play and then, you know, they can come grab them as soon as the doc gets on instead of them sitting in a confined waiting room. So, you know, I think what we've learned through this is that telemedicine is the way of the future, not for everything, but um, many, many patients can get better care with telemedicine. And and we certainly hope that that will continue after this pandemic. Um, and then the third is the, the same technology that we use for seeing patients with telemedicine. We've now realized we can actually do a lot of our work uh, by telemedicine. So, for instance, conferences where everyone drove in from, you know, 20 states and got in one room, well, you know, those can be done pretty well uh, by telemedicine, and we can actually have our colleagues from Europe on the, on the same phone call. So it's not going to completely replace in-person care or conferences or anything, but we realized that it was underutilized before this pandemic, and we don't want it to completely go away even when this uh, virus uh, goes away. So I think there's always a silver lining, and, and that would definitely be one of them. Oh, definitely. And I, I, I think it's very positive. I mean, our son has been treated for Crohn's over the years at Children's National. And to be able to do telemedicine with his doctors has just been really great. And, and to be able to just do that check in, even, you know, that we're an hour down the road, it's, it saves the hour in DC traffic. So, <laughs> you know, right. it's right. pretty, pretty fantastic. I think families are, uh, are appreciating that. I'm sure doctors are as well, as you said. So that is, that is wonderful. b one oh one five dot keyword donate if you want to uh, give to our Children's Hospital, Children's National, and the so, ma- so many wonderful things that they are doing. Dr. DiBiase, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for your hard work and your research and everything that you all are doing at Children's National. We appreciate uh, every little thing that's happening, every big thing that's happening. Um, so many things that we didn't even have time to talk about today, but uh, I know that you guys are on the case, and that makes that makes us all feel better. So thank you very much. Well, we really appreciate your support and all the support from the community. So stay well. Your emails are always welcome. If you have questions or comments about today's show or an idea for a future program, email D, that's D-E-E, at B1015.com. Sunday Mornings with D is powered by Mary Washington Healthcare, one of D.C.'s best hospitals that isn't in D.C. It's in Fredericksburg, Mary Washington Hospital, here for you. The thoughts, comments, statements, and opinions of the host and guest are their own, and not necessarily those of Centennial Broadcasting, B101.5, or Station Management. Thanks for listening to Sunday Mornings with D. Daniels on B101.5.
The journey to pregnancy is different for everyone. Whether your journey to motherhood is a breeze or requires advanced treatment options, Mary Washington Healthcare delivers personalized care for you and your baby with our obstetrics and gynecologic and maternal fetal medicine practices. Our partnership with Children's National Hospital and specialty certified staff in the region's only level 3 NICU means we are equipped to care for even the smallest miracle. Learn more at mybaby.mwhc.com. Our healthcare workers have gone the distance. Now it's your turn to run or walk the distance. Join Stafford Hospital for the Cabin Fever 5K. Participate virtually between April 9th through the 18th. Get the whole family involved with the Half Mile Kids Fun Run. This race is part of the Stafford Race Series and Fredericksburg Area Running Club's Caldwell Banker Elite Grand Prix. Visit runsignup.com and search Stafford Hospital Cabin Fever 5K to sign up. 